Welcome to the FFI Practitioner Podcast. I'm Jordan Rich. Today's subject, a fresh new look at the role of the beneficiary with Patricia Angus of the Angus Advisory Group. And as a follow-up to her book, The Trustee Primer, she's now written The Beneficiary Primer, a guide for beneficiaries of family trusts, a valuable tool for beneficiaries and advisors. Patricia Angus is an expert who has more than 25 years experience working with families to create, administer, and benefit from trusts. And the new book is a go-to resource for any who has been named as a beneficiary. First question for you, Patricia, why write the book now? Well, you know, it's really interesting, Jordan. I I actually started the book 20 years ago. So it only took me 20 years to write a book that you can read in pretty much under an hour if you do it fast enough. Uh, But I hope it's something that will last for the next 20 years. I was a young trust and estates lawyer, and I uh, found myself distressed at all of the work that we lawyers were doing and wealth advisors were doing. And we were creating these wonderful trusts, and they were beautifully written. And the people for whom they were uh, written, the beneficiaries, really had no idea what was going on. And so you had these people who became trust beneficiaries, often not knowing there was a trust for their benefit, certainly not knowing what a trust was, not knowing what their role was and what to do about it. And um, often, you know, having trustees who were just as confused. So 20 years later, I decided to put pen to paper or, or finger to pixel. And I, um, I ended up knocking it out in a way that does what I was always hoping to do. I thought, Trust beneficiaries need a conceptual framework. Not many people enjoy reading 20 to 30 page single spaced legal documents like I do. (laughs) So I have to realize that people who have trust need to know what is the framework of a trust? What does a trustee do? What are the three basic responsibilities and what is your responsibility as a beneficiary? Tell me about the responsibility that people do feel and it's legitimate when they are beneficiaries. It is absolutely legitimate. And, you know, I mean, before I even talk about the responsibility, the risk of a trust is that you can feel infantilized, you can feel disempowered, and you can feel like an adult who's beholden to somebody else who has Uh, power and control over you. So the responsibility of a beneficiary is basically to understand what the intention of the trust was, what was the purpose. Most people think it's about taxes. There's at least 10 or 15 other purposes. And in the end, trusts are set up to help people, not to hinder them. So that's really important for the trust beneficiary to understand that. They also have to um, play a part Too often in the past, beneficiaries were not only treated like recipients who had no responsibility, but they acted that way as well. So as a trust beneficiary, you have to find out what the purpose is, read the trust document or have it read to you. Or actually in my book, I've got sort of a little cheat sheet that you can fill out as you go through. What's a grantor? What's a trustee? What's a beneficiary? Understand the terminology enough. Understand enough about the legal framework that trusts live within. And it's really cool. Mm. I'm one of the few people who will go out there in public and say trusts are cool. And the reason they're cool is that they separate ownership. Nothing else does it like that. They separate legal owners from beneficial owners. They're not just a contract. They're not just a bank account. 
it's really interesting. What are some of the other purposes that people draw up a trust and people become beneficiaries? Because you, you tease that, and I'd love to hear you explain it. Jordan, I don't know if you have children or not. Oh, I do. <laughs> if, if you do, and they are under the age of 18, God forbid something were to happen to you and you didn't take care of them. Mm. So a will takes care of whatever you've left at the end of your life, and it goes through a court and it decides what happens with it. A trust can last long beyond when you're gone. So anybody with a young child who is concerned about how things will be handled for them, not only do you need a guardian of the person, meaning who will raise your children, but also you need a trustee who will manage the funds and distribute for education and for all of the other things that your kids will need. So taking care of young people. There are also a lot of people in the world who don't have the capacity to manage money. I don't think that everybody was born wanting to be a stock picker, much less an asset allocator. So if you set up a trust, you can set up a professional arrangement for your beneficiary. That's another reason that people do it. There's also a lot of people who are um, with what we call special needs. There's lots of ways to talk about it. Not everybody has mental or physical capacity, especially mental capacity. So taking care of those people in your life is another reason that you would need a trust. And then, of course, there's taxes. In the U.S., we focus more on taxes. The rest of the world looks at trusts in different ways. Um, and then asset protection. So if I set up a trust for you, Jordan, because you seem like a very nice guy, uh, then I could set up some terms that would go on for the rest of your life and no creditors would be able to uh, have access to that so long as the trust has been administered mm. the way it was intended to be. Tip of the hat to you, Patricia, because for many people, their eyes glaze over. And that's what your book and this primer is is trying to do, is trying to take away the mystery. How does it apply to practitioners out there who want to gain from your insight? What can they put to practice with the use of a book like this? Yeah, first of all, there are a lot of practitioners, including lawyers. Uh, not every lawyer uh, is practicing trust in the state. So you might be a corporate lawyer, you might be a real estate lawyer, you might be a bankruptcy lawyer, and your clients may have family trusts. So helping yourself get up to speed on it, really important. Lots of accountants are working with families who have trusts. They may know how to do the fiduciary accounting, uh, record keeping, and tax filings, but understanding the conceptual framework really good for them. Mm. Lots of management consultants are working with families in business. And then there's a category of that family business or family enterprise consultants who also need to understand the context in which their clients are working. So to, to take it for your own sake, to understand what your clients are living with, but then also to better um, navigate with your client the reality, for example, if you have a family business and it's owned in trust. I have to say, too often, consultants will say, you're the owner. What would you like to do with this business? Hmm. And then I have to say, they're not actually the legal owner. They're the beneficial owner, not the legal mm. owner. And that distinction makes all the difference. And uh, any advisor working with a family that has business and trust absolutely should, should understand trust better. In your experience as an educator and an advisor, have you found that people are a little embarrassed to even ask the questions? I'm embarrassed, you know, that I don't know what my role is. It's a barrier. I hope we're breaking down. Your book will help, I guess. But have you found that to be the case? Absolutely. And you know, I, I often use slides with um, hearts on them <laughs> and because really love should be the baseline of all of this and empathy should be the approach. So uh, absolutely, there are no dumb questions, as we all say. Uh, and often people who are trust beneficiaries, because they feel they are in this power imbalanced relationship 
are even more uh, worried about acknowledging what they don't know. So when I work mm-hmm. with families and when I work in the classroom, I started a baseline not to embarrass the people who would like to think they know more than they do. And just to say, look, let's just all get a standard baseline here. It's a vocabulary uh, issue. It's a conceptual issue. You just you need to know the framework before you can play the game. Basically, On your website, there are many, many avenues to take, but the word psychology popped out at me. It's all about people. It's all about relationships, isn't it? It's all about people. And, you know, I'll be honest, I was trained as a lawyer, not a psychologist. (laughs) And I am not going in doing psychology. But in every class I teach, which gets back to the question of what do you do in academia versus what you do with clients, you know, with a client, I will bring in a psychologically trained consultant to be a complement to what I'm doing. Mm. That's really important with clients. Mm -hmm. In the classroom, I want students to have a fundamental psychological grounding and to understand at all times how that drives things unconscious motivations drive it the family as a system drives it you do not have to become an expert you have to have awareness of it and empathy the whole idea of a trust and a beneficiary i mean these are all legal terms that for the longest time seemed well above anyone's pay grade if they weren't lawyers or accountants it's an interesting sea change that we're finally involved in And I'm glad it's a time whose idea came a long time ago, and now there's more recognition of it. I was part of uh, what I would call a movement within the legal field, saying that it's important for clients to understand the structures you've created. It's important to use language that they understand. Now, sometimes you need to use legal terms. I also think it's important for clients to understand the legal terms and not be intimidated by Mm. them. Latin's really cool. There's a lot, like the word fiduciary (laughs) is fabulous. It basically means that you are responsible to another person based on fetus, which goes all the way back in time. So there's history and there's psychology and there's language to it all. And once you get enough of a grasp of that, it's not as intimidating. Let's talk about your role as an educator. Have you seen, uh, obviously you do it, but have you seen it systemically get more broad, more interesting, more... Uh, relatable as the years have gone on. It seems as though you're doing it. I'm sure others are doing it. I hope they are. Well, you know, academia um, is a really interesting place for this. We need the researchers because the researchers are looking at large numbers of people and not at individual cases, generally speaking. So it's just like if you're a medical researcher, you're looking at all of the instances of cancer, not the not the mm. patient in your room. It's very similar in family enterprise and in family wealth and family trusts. We need actually more researchers to be looking at the large data numbers, but then we practitioners also have to then be applying it in the best way that we can. So I would say in academia, you know, last there's, there's, you know, at Columbia, we talk a lot about combining theory with practice. Families, family wealth, family trust is the ultimate theory and practice combination. You cannot understand a family until you've sat across from them and heard their greatest challenges. Uh, but back to what we were talking about psychology, I asked my uh, class last week, a bunch of executive MBAs, how many had ever studied psychology and not a single hand went up. Hmm. And it's really important for people who are going into industry, going into business that are primarily owned by families, 90% of the world's businesses are owned by families, you have to have some sense of psychology. One of the questions that you ask in the guidance section on your website is, are you seeking to make a larger impact on society with your resources? I'm sure you are 
working with people who are younger or middle-aged who have real solid plans to do something to benefit the rest of us uh, as we go along. In other words, the role of the beneficiary to me is is a lot broader than just the kid who's going to inherit it all. It's such a deep question that you're asking. (laughs) (laughs) How many hours do we have? As long as you want. Uh, (laughs) um, I've been grappling with and thinking about that issue for a long time, in part because when I started out as a practicing lawyer in the early 1990s, I was working with what I would say is probably the end of the industrial era families that had started accumulating wealth in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So I was working with inheritors in their fourth, fifth, sixth generation of Mm. wealth that had passed down a family. Mm. And consistently, they wanted to do more with what they had than people expected them to, honestly. And I think we have an interesting paradox in this country, especially, where we assume inherited wealth is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And we assume that anybody who has inherited wealth is lazy. And neither of those things is true. It's very hard if you have inherited wealth to prove yourself in a world that defines uh, success by making your own money. So what drove a lot of the original clients that I had 30 or 40 years ago was making a difference in the world that they knew was inequitable. They knew that. Absolutely. They had lived it in their own families. They lived it in the world around them. So that was a big driver. Today, you have a large generation, millennials and iGens, who absolutely are values driven Mm -hmm. and want to be making an impact in the world. And often the way they're doing it is through their trusts and through other inherited wealth. So I think the paradigm between or the apparently the line between inherited and earned wealth is blurring because we have so much inherited wealth in our society right now. Right, right. And then the driver to have an impact is in every family I work with. It's just nice to know that it's it's you can't paint with a broad brush. I think the media loves those bad stories, so to speak. <laughs> and often I will get interviewed and I refuse to take the bait, which they want to give you. Come on, tell us your crazy stories. Tell us how bad the people are. I'm sorry, most people are fundamentally good. They have different uh, circumstances that they're living in and understanding the complexity would help us all. And um, you know, on the societal level, I think we are in a very precarious moment in time because of the enormous disparity of wealth that mm. especially got accelerated in the last 10 years. Yeah. And what we do as a society is a different question. This is the academic question versus the individual client question. As a society, so I recently wrote an article, sort of, what's your role in the community? And I wrote another article, are you wealthy? Because I think we all need to be asking the questions, is this the balance we want in society? And what do Mm. we do about that? Well, it's a Hollywood and media cliche that if you have money, if you're inheriting money, somehow you're less than admirable. And that's kind of what you and others have been fighting, I guess, over the years. I agree. And I think that we absolutely must look at the societal issues. I do think that the disparity has gotten to a dangerous level and the the attacks on governing and governance right now around the world. It's not just the United States. We are, we are in a crisis moment uh, that is no larger than any that's come, certainly since World War II and probably since the Enlightenment. What is the role of the government? What's the role of the private sector? And what's the role of the charitable sector? Those are huge questions that all my clients are asking. My students are asking, absolutely. And I would also say advisors need to ask. And if you are working with a family that has inherited wealth, if you're working with a family business, you have to figure out what's your own bias that you've brought into the room. So I love that you said empathy is one of your favorite words. 
I often find that people who are working with families with wealth project onto those families their mm. own jealousy, mm-hmm. their own assumptions, and their own biases. And that's part of what's happened to trust beneficiaries over the time. It's yeah, too easy to say, yeah. I, would get, I would do it better. You're right now, before we wrap up, at the fulcrum of all of these issues as an educator, as an advisor, as somebody who can actually write the docs, but also help the people through the process. Final question, are you really enjoying it as much as it appears? I am. I am. I'm enjoying grappling with society's greatest questions with my clients and mm. my students. And I'm enjoying working with individual clients, trying to make the most of what they have out of their trusts, out of their wealth, and their impact in the world. Well, what's better than that? I think our practitioners who are listening uh, would certainly agree, and we can all aspire to do more. Thank you so much, Patricia. Wonderful meeting you. Thank you, Jordan. Really appreciated talking to you. Patricia Angus, author of her new book, The Beneficiary Primer, A Guide for Beneficiaries of Family Trusts. You can find out more about the book and Patricia at her website, angusadvisorygroup.com. You can also connect with us directly by visiting ffi.org. I'm Jordan Rich, thanking you for listening. Take care.